turn to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. And as soon as you find it, say word. Find verse 14. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, verily, their sound went into all the earth, and their words unto the ends of the world. But I say, did not Israel know? For Moses saith, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people, and by a foolish nation I will anger you. But Isaiah is very bold, and saith, I was found of them that sought me not, I was made manifest unto them that ask not after me. But to Israel he saith, all day long I have stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. Why do people not come to Christ for salvation? Is it because God has not elected them to salvation, or is it because they have refused to believe in Jesus? The answer is yes, both. Romans chapter 9 clearly told us God has this sovereign plan for salvation, but now Romans chapter 10 is telling us We have no excuse. If we will call on the name of the Lord, as we saw in verse 13 last week, we can and will be saved. And I know for a lot of people that I've talked to over the years, that's a hard thing to reconcile in your mind. The sovereign plan of God, that God works out our salvation, and our responsibility to believe in Christ. And one verse that's helped me so much over the years is Deuteronomy 29, 29. Look at this verse. It says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Make a note of this verse. Because here's what it tells me. It tells me that there's things, the secret things of God, that is His sovereign plan that will come to pass because he has ordained it to come to pass. And we don't know what that's going to be. We don't know the sovereign plan of God until after it happens. But what we do know is that he has given us things, as it says there, he has revealed things to us, which is his word, that we might follow it. So we know we must trust on the name of the Lord to be saved. Another question that comes up in this text is not only... Why, does, why do people not come to Christ? But specifically, why did Israel refuse to participate in this salvation? 
And so we're going to have a, a kind of two applications going on at once here. Thinking about Israel, God's people, and why they did not follow him. And we've already said many times, most of them rejected him. And the second part of this, it comes back to us today, and that is, are we rejecting him? And as I read, as I read those verses this week, I thought, it's almost like Paul is imagining someone saying to him, maybe God did not do enough. Maybe God did not make it to where the people actually could hear the word and believe the word. And so he responds in such a way to say, God gives people and gave people every opportunity to know him, and yet they rebelled and rejected Christ. None of us can say, God did not give me an opportunity. If you're hearing the sound of my voice today, God is giving you an opportunity, if you haven't already, to repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ. I'm not sure there's a better place in Scripture to go that spells out the salvation kind of process when it relates to our response to God. And so I'm going to give you quickly here, or maybe not so quickly, I don't know yet, five steps in these verses related to our salvation. Number one, notice there is a sending that happens. We saw that in verse 14. He asked these series of questions. How will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how will they believe in the one they've not heard? And how will they hear unless someone preaches? And so verse 15 says, how are they to preach unless they are, what? Sent. And we know there are men called by God to be pastors that the church sets apart. And these men are sent to preach the gospel, both near and far. We also know that in a general sense, we're all called to share the gospel, to proclaim the gospel. If you are a Christian, uh, you have a responsibility throughout your life to, when the opportunity arises, to share the gospel and to be a witness for Christ. God has always done this. God has always provided people to deliver his message. I mean, think about the Old Testament. Remember when God would send angels to deliver messages? Or even in the New Testament, he did that. God would also send prophets to deliver messages. Of course, he sent Jesus to deliver messages. A message, And now, he sends preachers and he sends Christians. But when you see this word there, sent, it refers specifically to uh, this relationship between the, the person sending and the person who is sent. Uh, the, it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of like a king who would send out his herald or his ambassador who would go and speak for him. And in the same way, Jesus is the king, and he sends us out to speak for him. In other words, when I share the word with you, or if you share the word with someone else, is it important to share my word or the word of God? If I stood up here every week and just gave you my opinions and never used the scripture, what good would that be? I wouldn't be a preacher at that point, would I? I would just be a talker. By the way, there are people standing in pulpits, even this morning across our country, who are not really preachers, they're just talkers, because they don't even use this, right? This is the message we are to proclaim. It's his message. And so in Romans 10, 15, you see this verse, it says, uh, how are they to preach unless they are sent? This is a quote from Isaiah 52, and watch this. I think this is pretty interesting, guys. In Isaiah 52, God's people has been, they've been in captive for 70 years, and they've been waiting for God to rescue them. 
And now the time is coming that God's going to rescue his people. And in Isaiah 52, he has this, this picture, this prophecy of the, the messengers coming over the mountains to shout victory and deliverance to the captives. And so he says they're, they're basically running. They're swift. They're quick. They're moving fast. They're running toward the people to announce that God is going to save them and bring them back home. Isn't that a picture? How are they to preach unless they are sent? We are sent to declare the gospel that people might be delivered. And yet, how often do we just kind of hoard that good news to ourselves instead of sharing it with others? I'll be honest. Verse 15 has always been a little weird to me because the second part. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Have you ever thought that verse is kind of weird? I'm like, I don't know that many beautiful feet. Unless, you know, maybe that's just your thing. But my wife has a saying, and if you're taking notes, write this down. This is, this is good. She has a saying, and here it goes. We live by this at our house. The saying is, feet are gross. And that's our saying. Don't touch me with your feet. They're gross. I think she's right. Isaiah here, when he says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news, he's not saying, man, these preachers, they're well manicured or pedicured. Their, their feet are looking good. You know, that's not what he's saying. He's saying the feet describes their action, their activity. Their activity is they don't just stand there with the word, they take the word somewhere. As we said in Isaiah 52, they were coming over the mountains to share it. We, how beautiful are the feet of those, and that could be us, who take and actively share the good news. It's beautiful not in the sense of the, the way their feet look, it's beautiful in the sense of the message they are bringing. Number one, there's a sending. Number two, notice there is a, pre- a preaching, a preaching of the word. Those who are sent must proclaim or preach the word. Isn't it interesting that God could have chosen anything else? God could have chosen any way to share his word in this world. He could have just spelled John 3.16 with the stars, couldn't he? He could have taken stars and wrote Bible verses up there. He could do anything, and yet God chose to use preaching a guy standing before you, spending 30 minutes or so-ish, explaining God's word. He chose to use that to share his message, or us sharing the word in the world. I think it's interesting that in 1 Corinthians 1.21, Paul said that it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. A lot of people think preaching is silly or not important or whatever, but I hope, and I know we, believe, we feel this way here, that it's very important. And I'm not saying that because I'm the preacher. It's important that we preach the word of God. This is why preaching must be the central activity of the church. I've talked to people before that said, man, you should visit our church. We have an amazing children's ministry. You know, we have our youth go on trips every month. Our choir's big. The preacher is not very good, but all this other stuff's amazing. <laughs> but isn't that a problem? The preaching, whether it's good or not, if it's biblical-centered preaching, should be the central activity of the church. Not because I said that, because that's what God wants. That's what God says. Now, should we do other things? Yeah, we should pray and sing and 
evangelize and serve and love each other and encourage each other, but we must not let the preaching of the word go by the wayside. In Matthew 4, 4, Jesus said, as he talked about the importance of the word of God that we preach, he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. I spoke with someone this week who I care about who said they have no desire to read the Bible. They said they have no desire to go to church and hear preaching. And I gave them this verse. And I said, listen, for a Christian, the Bible is spiritual food. And we eat two or three or four or five, six times a day. How many times a day do we spiritually feast on the Word? If you can go through your life and not have a desire to hear the Word and read the Word, then you're not living the Christian life the way it was meant to be lived. It is not a super Christian who reads the Bible. It is a Christian who reads the Bible, or it should be. The following was sent to me this past week. No, it was said to me in person, actually. Someone who listens to our church on Facebook, and if they're listening this morning, hello, um, they said they love how we've been preaching through the book of Romans chapter by chapter. And this person said, when I was growing up, I don't ever remember hearing preachers go through books verse by verse. And I really learn a lot more because the way you are preaching it. And I said, wow. And at first I was just sad that that's the way they, that their experience was. God has given us this book and we believe in expository preaching, which means we're going through books of the Bible. And from time to time we might do a one-off sermon, but I'm thankful that you as a church will receive that. I've been in some churches where you try to preach through a book of the Bible, you get a couple chapters in and everybody's like, I'm out. <laughs> I'm not listening anymore. I've turned you off. But I thank you that you've been willing to listen through 10 chapters, eight months worth of Romans, and I uh, appreciate y'all for that. I hope we can say with Paul that the word of God is important and the foolishness of preaching is important and that, as he said in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, I've decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Number three, they are sent they preach, and there is a hearing that happens. Again, in verse 14, how will they call on him of whom they have not believed, and how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And of course, that amazing verse in verse 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. I was listening to a message this week by Pastor John Piper. He used to pastor a church in Minnesota, Minneapolis. Well, he's been a major influence in my life. and um, To me, he's like the Yoda of Christian preaching. But um, he was talking about these verses to his church. And he said, with just a tremble in his voice, he pastored probably, I don't know, 30 years at that church, I don't know. He said, I thank God that you are such an amazingly humble and yielded people to the word of God. He said, I just sense that every time I get close to what the word is really saying, you get close to saying, 
Amen. I love that. And it made me think about our church. And it doesn't, you know, you don't have to say amen out loud, but as I get closer to what the word really says and get through maybe some of the ridiculous stuff I might say, as I'm getting close to what it really says, I hope at least in your heart you're saying amen. That's right. I agree with that. I believe that truth. There is a hearing that takes place. Number four, there is a believing that takes place. How are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And again in verse 17, faith, faith, belief comes by hearing. Notice verse 16. I want to point this out to you as well. It says, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. In Paul's day, to obey the gospel is the same thing as to believe it. In Paul's day, there weren't Christians who said, I believe the gospel, but I'm not going to obey or follow it. If you believe it, you obey it. That was the same. Those are synonymous there uh, in the New Testament language. I want to share this with you. And I was given a book uh, by a man named Jim Oreck. Um, I think this was in Christmas at Christmas. And I've, I've read through it this year. And he explained how Christ, many people believe things about Jesus without actually believing in Jesus. And I want to share with you uh, kind of a passage and some thoughts from this man, Jim Oreck, that I just think somebody needs to hear today. I don't know who. Saving faith is not merely acknowledging facts. It is receiving and resting upon Christ alone for salvation. It is receiving a person. The word Christ means anointed one, and it's become one of the names by which we refer to Jesus. But originally, the name Christ was not really a name, it was a title. And so in the Old Covenant... The Old Testament, when God wanted to set aside a person for a special task, he would have someone come and anoint this person's oil, this person's head with oil. And when God did that, it was a sign that that person had been chosen for a certain job or ministry. And so when we say Jesus is the Christ, or the name Jesus Christ, it's Jesus the anointed one. And in the Old Testament, there were three very important jobs that God ordained. Prophets, priests, and kings. Prophets spoke for God. Priests offered sacrifices and interceded for the people. And kings conquered, defended, and ruled by God's authority. When Jesus came, he fulfilled all three of those roles. He was prophet. He was priest. And he was king. And so when we receive Christ, we're receiving not facts. We're receiving a person who is a prophet, a priest, and a king. I want you to think about these, these three offices. First, Christ executes the office of a prophet by revealing himself to us through the word of God and the spirit of God. And so are you willing to receive Jesus as your prophet? In other words, will you take the word of Christ to be absolute truth and reject any ideas and philosophies that contradict his word? 
That's a part of receiving the person of Jesus Christ as you receive his word as truth. Christ executed the office of priest, of course, by offering up himself as the sacrifice for sins. Are you willing to receive Jesus as your priest? It means you must abandon any ideas of saving yourself by your own good works. If you take Jesus and receive him as your priest, then you're relying on him to represent you before God the Father, and you trust that Jesus did everything necessary to make you right with God. Next, Christ executes the office of a king by subduing us to himself, ruling over us, and leading us to conquer all his enemies. Will you receive Jesus as your king? Will you lay down your arms of rebellion, submit to his absolute rule, and look to him as your champion to deliver you from all your spiritual foes? If you and I, if we've received Jesus as prophet, priest, and king, then we have received Jesus the Christ. As he said in John 1, it said, Jesus came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Listen, there is a huge difference between believing things about Christ and His work and truly believing in Christ. And there are people who intellectually, mentally have agreed, yes, Jesus was a real person, He was God, He died on the cross, He rose again, He did all those things, and yet they've never truly received the person who is Jesus Christ, prophet, priest, and king. Number five, not only is there a believing, but there is a calling. How then will they call on him? This harkens back to verse 13. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then he says, but how will they call on him who they have not believed? We've talked at length in previous sermons about the call of God, where he calls our hearts. He effectually wins the sinner's heart, calls the sinner's heart. But now in Romans 10, he's talking about our calling on the Lord. True saving faith is the kind that calls on Christ. True faith calls on him. This is why when I counsel children, especially younger children, it's always a... Like a ner- I'm always nervous to do it because I can teach any kid, maybe even a two-year-old, three-year-old, four-year-old, I can teach them a little bit about Jesus. And you can, you've done that as well with maybe your children. And they know facts about Jesus, but are they truly ready to receive him in faith and call on the name of the Lord? And so I've sat with parents and a child and discussed their child's salvation because the parent was kind of wanting them to talk with me and and I would tell the child, do you know Jesus? Do you know who Jesus is? And yeah, do you know what Jesus did? Yeah, he died on the cross. Do you know that you're a sinner? Yes, I'm a sinner. I do wrong things. And they can agree with all these facts. But in my talking with them, you can just sense they're not ready, many of them, to at that point call on the name of the Lord. And sometimes parents are kind of pushy like, just make them do it. <laughs> I can't make them do it. It's, it's a God thing. 
And it scares me because what we've done over the years, I've seen this in churches myself, is we've said to that child, well, just repeat this prayer after me and you'll be fine. And you'll lead that child through a prayer for five seconds or 10 seconds or 20 seconds. And you'll say, well, you're now a Christian. Let's baptize you. And that child goes on and they become a teenager. And I promise it happens over and over. It's happened to some of you. You begin to doubt that salvation. You weren't like, did I really get saved? Am I really a Christian? I said some stuff to the preacher, but did I really get saved? There's a calling that happens when we're truly saved, that we, we call on the Lord. Look at this scripture in Mark chapter 10. I put it there for you. It's the story of blind Bartimaeus. And uh, he hears Jesus is coming to town and that Jesus is coming nearby. So I'll, I'll read it. He says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said, Rabbi, of course, let me recover my sight. And Jesus says, go your way. Your faith has made you whole or well. But notice, when Jesus is coming forth, blind Bartimaeus calls out to him. Jesus, he calls out, Jesus, have mercy on me. He didn't just sit there and go, hmm, that's Jesus. I believe he could probably heal me. That belief became action. It became a calling out. Do you think blind Bartimaeus said it like this? Do you you think he said, hey, Jesus, do you mind coming up here for a second? You think that's how he did it? I think he was probably very loud. And Jesus, right? Have mercy on me. Come speak to me. Come help me with my sight. And notice how Jesus says your faith has made you whole. And to me, Jesus here equates the fact that he called out with his faith. The calling out is an overflow of faith. You don't find biblical accounts of people calling on the Lord with some half-hearted call or some going through the motions wrote prayers. You find people like this guy. Go through the scriptures and find people in the New Testament who call on Jesus. They're like this guy. They're like the man on the cross, the thief on the cross, who said, Lord, I mean, if you, if you would, remember, remember me when you come to paradise. You think that's how he said it? Lord, please remember me when you get to paradise. To call on Jesus is a call of desperation. Like you're drowning in the sea and someone's there with a raft and you're like, throw it. Help, save me. True faith leads to a calling out of God. I hope you've called on the name of the Lord. So the question here that I started with is, are you sure, Paul, are you sure that God has made a way? I know Israel is rejecting, but have you made a you sure God's done all He can do? And the answer is absolutely yes. God has sent forth His Word with people preaching it. They've preached it. People have heard it. And all those who hear, believe, and call will be saved. And yet, how many people refuse to believe in Christ? That's what the next few verses talk about. In verses 16 through 21, specifically here, we look at Israel's responsibility and their rejection. And Paul quotes these Old Testament verses to just show them 
their blatant rejection of God. And someone might say, well, man, Israel truly, surely Israel would have believed in God. Maybe they just didn't hear it. It reminds me of being a husband. Has your wife, guys, ever said something to you and you're like, what are you talking about? She's like, I told you that last week. And you're like, I don't remember hearing that. Am I the only one? Right. It happens to me in my house once a week. Yeah. Have you ever tried this, though, when your wife gets mad at you? Have you ever tried to say, hey, just calm down? That doesn't work. Makes it worse. So I have something new. Y'all try. Here, this is a free marriage tip. Yesterday, my wife was kind of getting on me pretty hard. And, uh, and, what's that noise? I didn't stop talking about it. I know, my heart's going to do, do, do. She started yelling me pretty bad, and I probably deserved it. And I, in my mind, I thought to myself, just tell her to calm down. But my body was like, you can't take a beating today. And so I let her finish, and when she finished her talk, I'll call it, I looked at her and I said, you know what? I love your energy. <laughs> she stormed out. <laughs> so but I thought that was pretty clever at least. I think at least later on in the day she was probably like, that was pretty clever. But okay, she did. Okay. Look, just like some of us hard-headed husbands sometimes, Israel was told some stuff that they didn't hear it. And in verse, uh, here in verse 16, he's quoting Isaiah 53, which is a great chapter, of course. And the point of it is that God sent prophets, and they did miracles among them, and yet the people still wouldn't believe. Prophets preaching, proclaiming, miracles being done, and they wouldn't believe. I mean, think about Jesus, because Jesus actually quotes this as well. He quotes Isaiah 53, just like Paul does later. Jesus quotes it to say to the people in John chapter 12 that I'm here, I'm proclaiming the word, I'm doing miracles, and yet you still don't believe. You have no excuse. I'm showing you the truth. Well, maybe they heard it and just didn't understand it. That leads us to the second one here, which is David. And he quotes Psalm 19 verse 4, saying, the word has gone out. I mean, the, the heavens declare the glory of God. The word of God, the truth of God has gone out. There is no excuse. They heard it. They understood it. The reason Israel did not believe is because they were rebellious, hard-hearted, hard-headed, disobedient people. Then in verse 19 of our text, he quotes Moses. He quotes Moses in, in 19 through 21, or 19, excuse me, and this is from Deuteronomy 32. And this is Moses at the end of his life, and he sings this song to all the people of Israel in which he talks about God making them jealous by helping a people that's not his people. And why did God intend to make them jealous? Well, just to show them, right? Here's what you're missing. Here's what you should be doing. Here's the blessings you should be experiencing, and yet you're not because you've rejected me. God says there through the mouth of Moses, that because of their provoking God to, to anger, they have, he will provoke them with a, another nation. Finally, number four here, we see Isaiah once again. This is in verses 20 and 21 of our text, and it's in Isaiah 65. 
again, the same type of thing here where God says in Isaiah 65, I was ready to be sought by you. I was ready to be found by you. Here I am. God says in, in Isaiah 65 too, I spread out my hands all day to a rebellious people, and yet they do not follow me. They do not ch- come to choose me and, and, and walk with me. You see, God was ready for the people to come to Him, but they rebelled. And what I see here as we move toward the conclusion of this text is God is patient. Does God have a sovereign plan for salvation? We've read about it in Romans 8 and 9, absolutely. But we don't know what that is. What we do know is God is patient with us. He was patient with Israel time and time again. He's patient today. As 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord's not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You and I have no excuse when it comes to not following Jesus. If anyone is listening to me and you've not been saved, it's because you've not received Christ. You've rebelled against God's Son. You've not submitted to the Gospel You've not received Jesus as prophet, priest, and king, and you have rejected His mercy and grace. But God desires that you seek Him. And He holds out His hands, as He did to Israel, for us to receive it. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. If you hear the sound of my voice this morning, and if you forsake your sin... And if you will receive Christ, believing in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, and if you will call on Him, confessing that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. Let's pray.